be called to worship. The Lord is risen. Alleluia.
Christ is alive, the cross does stand empty to the sky. Amen. Amen. I'll try that again. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Even as we pronounce this good news, we are aware at the same time of the things that are not yet set right in the world. Where death and despair are still allowed to have dominion, ways in which our lives still make peace with evil and its power in the world. Confident of Christ's victory then, we confess our sin and the sin of the world that it might be clearly seen and ultimately overcome. Let us pray. Almighty God, in raising Jesus from the grave, you shattered the power of sin and death. We confess that we remain captive to doubt and fear, bound by the ways that lead to death. We overlook the poor and the hungry and pass by those who mourn. We are deaf to the cries of the oppressed and indifferent to calls for peace. We despise the weak and abuse the earth you made. Forgive us, God of mercy. Help us to trust your power to change our lives and make us new, that we may know the joy of life abundant given in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Amen. Anyone, anyone who is in Christ is new creation. Anyone who is in Christ is new creation. Look, the old life has gone and a new life has already begun. Friends, believe this good news. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are forgiven indeed and forgiven. We have peace with God and peace with one another. We are able to greet one another with peace, a peace which bridges distance and division and which transforms affinity into community. As we in this sanctuary exchange a greeting of peace in a moment, I would ask those of you worshiping online to greet us, greet one another by scanning the QR code on the screen or clicking the link below the video player to let us know that you were here so that we can deepen our worship connection even beyond this hour and beyond these walls. So friends, the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let us greet one another with signs of peace. The Lord be with you and welcome to worship with Fourth Presbyterian Church on this third Sunday of the season of Easter, also Confirmation Sunday, a new member Sunday. Here in the sanctuary, I invite you to take a moment to fill out the pew pads that are at the ends of the pews and pass them down and pass them back again. Uh, and take note of the names of the people sitting near you if you didn't learn them just now while you were exchanging peace with them. We do this because it strengthens our connection as a community and because it lets us know that you were here. It allows you to indicate if your contact information's changed or if there's anything that you would like us to know. 
As it is the season of Easter, we are continuing to celebrate and to live into the Easter good news of new life and new beginnings, even as we prepare together for an ending. As you likely will have read in the letters emailed to the congregation last Sunday and then mailed to member homes at the beginning of the week, Shannon Kirshner has accepted the call to be the next pastor of Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. Her last Sunday with us here will be over Memorial Day weekend on Sunday, May 28th. And that day we will have an opportunity to express our gratitude and our well wishes to Shannon and her family in a reception following worship. We'll also be giving Shannon a memory box of messages and notes and invite you to contribute your favorite memories of Shannon and her time with us. Details for contributing to that memory box are printed in your worship bulletin this morning. I would encourage you to look at those details. We pray together that Shannon and her family and the whole congregation of Fourth Church will experience God's comfort and assurance over these next six weeks together. If you did not receive the email announcement from Shannon last Sunday, we encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We don't want you to miss out over these next several weeks um, on any of the updates about this transition season for the church. The leadership of the congregation is hard at work planning for that season, and we want to make sure that you see the latest information as it takes shape. Details for how to subscribe to that newsletter are also in the worship bulletin. You can also find there many resources and opportunities available to you here at Fourth Church, including our inter intergenerational deep listening dinner being hosted by Cornerstones in May next month. If you're here this morning and you feel like you would benefit from a time of personal prayer with one of our church deacons, you're invited to do that, to visit Stone Chapel following the service. It's right here in the front of the sanctuary on your right, where deacons will be available to pray with you. And if you're a young adult here this morning, our 20s and 30s group wants to invite you to their brunch following the service. They'll be over at Astor Hall in the 900 North Michigan building. If you have been here before as a young adult, if this is your first time here as a young adult, please consider yourself eagerly invited to join in that um, fellowship event for young adults. And once again, we welcome you to worship at Fourth Church.
Let us pray. Living God, with joy we celebrate the presence of your risen word. Enliven our hearts by your Holy Spirit, so that we may proclaim the good news of eternal and abundant life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen now for God's word to us. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. So before we turn to scripture, I must also acknowledge the bittersweet feelings I have carrying into this worship service with you today, the dear people of Fourth Church. As Rocky indicated, I have accepted a call to become the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, Georgia. And I know that many of you were surprised by this news. I was surprised by the sense of call too, and yet I trust it is faithful. And I have absolutely no doubt that all will be well here at Fourth Church. I see this full sanctuary, our new members, our confirmands, who we will receive shortly, as yet more testimonies to the vitality and the strength of our ministry here, even as we all move into the season of transition. We will have more time to say what needs to be said, but I simply wanted to thank you for being who you are. Oh shoot, I have my Kleenex. I treasure these last nine years. And don't forget I'm here until May 28th, so you're not rid of me yet. Okay, let's get to God's judgment, shall we? <laughs> so our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 31 through 46. I invite you to listen for God's living word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the shepherd king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the shepherd king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you who are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mm -hmm. I believe in Jesus Christ. From thence he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. Throughout this season of Eastertide, we continue on in our Apostles' Creed series. Today, we are now on the last affirmation of the Creed to speak about the one we call Jesus, our Savior and our brother. But before we dive in more deeply, let's get one thing out of the way, shall we? What on earth does the noun quick refer to? It's important to know that we are not speaking about speed. We are not saying that Jesus our Christ will come again to judge those who are really fast. Rather, the earliest English meaning of the word quick is alive. As far back as Aristotle, it was assumed that the first time a pregnant person would feel the baby move in the womb, that indicated the baby had finally come to life. That particular moment was called the quickening. So when we make the theological claim that Jesus Christ will come to judge the quick and the dead, we are saying that we trust that the one we know as God in Jesus Christ will indeed be at the end of all time, judging all living things, people, nations, cultures, etc. The quick and the dead is simply theological shorthand for everything and everyone. So now that we have that out of the way, let's get to the real eyebrow-raising part of the statement, the judgment part. Some of you have heard me say that according to legend, the reformer Martin Luther once quipped, that the tension between grace and judgment is like a drunk man riding on a horse. You're always gonna fall off on one side or the other. 
And over the last nine years of our ministry together, I hope you know I always am going to fall off on the side of grace, which is the reason I wondered this week why I didn't assign this part of the creed to one of my colleagues on the Sunday when they were preaching. Nevertheless, it is at this moment of the creed when theologian Daniel Migliori claims that we are, quote, now at the point where the gospel is found or lost in the interpretation of this affirmation of the creed. We are also at the point where church divisions have occurred and continue to occur. Are we accepted by the astonishing grace of God that is received by faith? Or must we prove ourselves acceptable by our works? I find that statement provocative. We are now at the point where the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is either found or lost, depending a great deal on how we interpret this one creedal statement. And that need for interpretation is why I chose the passage from Matthew 25. It might help us get at what we, as Reformed theological tradition, mean when we claim that the one we know as Jesus our Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Now let's first settle ourselves again in the Gospel of Matthew since we've been moving in and out of many different scriptures over the course of this series. This passage that we heard is the fifth and final speech by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Immediately following this text, we quickly move into the narrative of Jesus' last days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. This implies that knowing all that was about to happen to him, Jesus chooses to speak in another parable about the way God will go about judging all of creation. And in the picture Jesus paints for us, we see Jesus as king, as sovereign, victorious over all creation. Furthermore, we also see Jesus as the holy shepherd, going about the business of gathering and sorting and judging. But when we listen carefully to the picture Jesus paints, we might realize that in this text, judgment is not related to the things that we might choose. Christ's judgment is not at all like the kind of sorting and judging we do with each other every single day. In this passage, we notice that divine judgment is not related one bit to one's theology or one's political affiliation or even to one's profession of faith. Did you catch that both the sheep and the goats call Jesus Lord? We don't even see the word sin in the entire passage about judgment, and for us Reformed Presbyterians, that might feel a little strange. No, here in Matthew 25, the kind of judgment about which Jesus speaks seems to be all about one thing. As writer Kathleen Norris once put it, It's all about God's holy insistence on imaginative living. Did we live our lives so imaginatively that when we saw the face of a struggling sheep, we saw the face of Christ present in that face? Did we use daily the gift of holy imagination so that we saw each person, including those who've been butted around or battered most of their life, as a child of God, equal of value to us, a fellow member of God's family, regardless of who they were or what they believed? And did we treat them accordingly? 
Or as Norris continued, were we spiritually lazy? Did we live as those who gave into the temptation of slothful living by failing to exercise the hard work of God's imagination? To paraphrase the great preacher Fred Craddock, did we see the face of another child who was shot in Chicago and say, well, it's not my kid? Or did we look at a recent widower sitting on a pew by himself and say, well, that's not my dad? Or do we pass by a person sitting up against the bus stop in front of the Walgreens down the street or down by one of the bridges across the river and say, well, it's not my mom or my brother or my sister or my friend? If I understand the text, it seems that the judgment of Matthew 25 centers on God's insistence that we use the holy imagination that God gives us. The holy imagination that we practice here in worship week after week, a holy imagination that allows us to see Christ in each other, in ourselves, and in even the most weakest or most difficult sheep around. How do we use that gift? Do we use it? Does it affect the decisions we make and the ways that we go about our lives? Or do we give in to a little bit of spiritual laziness, look out upon the world and everything that God has made and say, well, I just don't have time to care. It's not my problem. Do we kind of lazily shrug our shoulders and determine, I don't see how I could have done one thing about it. Jonathan Kozel, the writer who's devoted most of his career to studying and writing about children in poverty, once stated that he's now actually embarrassed to remember some of the ways he, by which he himself would talk about the need for stronger safety nets. He wrote that he used to march up to Capitol Hill in Washington to advocate for programs like Head Start. And he would say things like, every dollar you invest in Head Start today will save the country much more money later or in lower prison costs. Kozal confesses he's ashamed he ever phrased it that way. Now he wishes he had simply said, why not invest in them because they're babies and they deserve to have some joy in life. In other words, it sounds like Kozal wishes he had expressed more of God's insistence on holy imagination. The expression of holy imagination came to life for me this weekend when I learned that many of my African-American clergymen colleagues were leading a march into the loop to advocate for peace and calm. My friend, the Reverend Chris Harris of Bright Star, Minis Bright Star Ministries stated that by no means do they approve of the violence and the chaos that occurred last weekend by some young people, but at the same time, he said, they're all our kids. Our kids. And we need to stand up for and with them and actively show them other possibilities, he concluded. To me, that's what it means to use the gift of God's holy imagination. By the way, it's interesting to note that both the sheep and the goats were surprised in this parable. No one expected the shepherd king Jesus to go about the business of sorting and judging the way he did. The goats sure didn't. They were completely surprised 
to learn that by ignoring the strangers or the sick and the imprisoned, they had indeed ignored Christ himself. For if they had known, they would have acted very differently. Lord, when did we see you and not care for you? The goats asked, totally and completely surprised. Yet the sheep were also surprised by the way the shepherd king Jesus went about all that sorting and judging business. Clearly, they were not going through their lives calculating their actions based on some notion of future reward. They were not trying to earn their way into heaven by what they did. Apparently, they were just living their life, actively using their God-given holy imaginations, remembering God's holy insistence that all are of value to God, for all are loved by God, and that God is the judge not the sheep. God is the judge, not the sheep. That's another major emphasis in both this text and in our creed. But not only that, the one we know as Jesus, our Christ, is the one who will be the judge. In other words, the very one who was born of Mary into poverty and vulnerability, the very one who suffered under the powers of Pontius Pilate, the very one who chose not to fight back with violence, but rather to be crucified, dead, and buried, the very one who experienced all that it meant to be human, including feeling God forsaken, the very one who broke the bonds of death and promised us that life will always have the last word, that very one is the only one, the only one who will be the judge of all things, of all people, when we make the claim that Jesus Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead, we are claiming that he is not coming as someone unknown to us, nor is he different from the one who blessed the children and who hung from the cross. He will not have changed his identity or altered his purpose. He will be the very Christ who's proclaimed in the gospel, always coming to be with us in incomprehensible freedom and inexhaustible love. This promise that we've already seen the face of the one who will set all things right is incredibly important because it reminds us that any exercise of God's judgment will be fundamentally different from an act of retaliation or revenge. Just remember how God and Jesus, Jesus emptied God's self of power in order to demonstrate the strength of God's love. Furthermore, as we see throughout the witness of scripture, God's judgment is always about establishing order and restoring peace. God's judgment is always about setting things right, setting us right, and serving the divine purpose of justice, reconciliation, and life in communion, in relationship with God and with all the people of God. That tells me that if the one who will come to judge the quick and the dead is none other, then the one we know as Jesus our Christ, then we can be certain that we will be judged, as McLeary put it, in a manner far different, far more surprising, and far more merciful than we dare to believe or even able to imagine. This is why our practice of insisting on living as those who 
regularly use holy imagination as demonstrated in this text is so important. It's important because it changes us, not God's opinion of us. Let me say that again. Living out our faith, the claims of our baptism, is critically important because it changes us, not God's opinion of us. For as we see in the face of the one who will be our judge, God's opinion of us is always and will always be, you are one of my beloved, a new creation. Any judgment by the one who comes will always be in service of helping us to live and love more fully into that promise, that true identity of who we actually are. So may we once again choose to live with an insistence on holy imagination, not because we have to out of a fear of what might be next, but because we get to out of the promise that in God, all things will finally be made well, including all of us. Thanks be to God that we know the face of the one who will come. Amen.
Today is a special day in the life of our church as we celebrate the completion of the confirmation journey for a group of our young people and their adult leaders. Confirmation is our church's way of inviting young people, most of whom were baptized as infants or as children whose parents, many of you, made vows of faith on their behalf. Confirmation is how we invite them to make those vows of faith, to make a profession of faith for themselves and to become active members of this congregation. They're all up here on the pulpit side. These are some of our new members you're going to hear about in a moment. These are not much older looking confirmation students. (laughs) As well as their leaders. The leaders of the confirmation class are an important source of guidance and accompaniment along the journey. So I want to introduce them to you now. Our leaders this year in confirmation, you look nervous. (laughs) They're less intimidating than these guys have been all year, I promise you. Ann Stell, Amy Pirella, and Eric Wu. Thank you for your leadership. And now it's my joy to introduce you to the confirmation class. And as I do so, they will be uh, presented with a gift by Katie Patterson our, on our staff for youth ministry and their confirmation leaders. Franziska Amberg, Avery Bossert, Cece Burt, Lucy Chong, Willa Crosby, Alex Cruz, Francis Fairman, Rowan Foley, Mia Grady, Christopher Hutchinson, William Kerr, Milo Koenig, Eva Koshi, Gigi Lubin, Peyton McAdams, Sienna Moore, Evan Oaken, Samuel Pachola, Peter Pinto, Hugh Powers, Cole Robb, Ian Rutherford, Alexander Robinson, Max Schnabel, Evan Tax, Callie Vandermeed, Audrey Vondersit, and Felix Vujicin. I would invite you to recognize these confirmants for their journey this year. Franziska, Avery, Cece, Lucy, Francis, Mia, Christopher, William, Milo, Eva, Gigi, Peyton, Sienna, Evan, Samuel, Peter, Hugh, Cole, Alexander, Evan, Callie, Audrey, and Felix are presented by the session for the reaffirmation of the baptismal covenant. They now desire to profess their faith publicly and to accept greater responsibility in the life of the church and God's mission in the world. We rejoice that you now desire to declare your faith and to share with us in our common ministry. In baptism, you were joined to Christ and made members of his body. In the community of the people of God, you have learned of God's promise for you and for all of creation. You have been nurtured at the table of our Lord and called to witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And today is also a special day in the life of our community because we are also welcoming those who have made the commitment to become members of Fourth Presbyterian Church. It is with gratitude to God that we have the privilege of introducing to you 12 of God's beloved who at a session meeting this morning were officially welcomed as new members. For those of you who are joining us online, you will see their faces on the screen that you might know them and also welcome, encourage, and pray for each one of them. So friends, joining today by reaffirmation of faith, Andrew Dust, Emily Dust, Amanda Jens, Mackenzie Porter, and Ann Solomon. Amen. <laughs> And joining by letter of transfer, Bob Arnold, Linda Arnold, John Smith, Karen Smith, Carl Trainer, Darcy Trainer, and Alexandra Wasink. Again, let us enact joy. And now we ask you to affirm your faith by responding to these questions, friends. Trusting in the gracious mercy of God, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? Do you? Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, say, I do. Will you be Christ's faithful disciples, obeying his word and showing his love? Will you? And do you promise to share faithfully in the worship and work of this congregation, giving of yourself in every way? Do you promise to seek the fellowship of the church wherever you may be? If so, please say, I do. I do. And now Sophie Nunziati, a member of our church's session, has a question for all of us as a congregation. Will you, the entire congregation of Fourth Presbyterian Church, promise to welcome these new members, learning to love them, abiding with them, including them as family, supporting them on their faith journeys, and encouraging them to use their gifts for God's work in this world, will you? We will. Now I would invite us to stand together as you're able as we recite together the Apostles' Creed as printed in our order of worship. You guys all have this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of Please be seated. And let us pray together. Holy God, thank you for calling us to be your people and joining all of us to Christ's body, the church. We praise you for leading all of these young people to this congregation, all of the folks up here to this congregation, whether that was as children, as teenagers, or as adults. We pray that you would empower all of us by your spirit that we might love one another as Christ loved us, honoring him in all that we say and all that we do, giving our lives in service to others through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
So friends, I charge you to remember your baptism and be thankful and to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in each one of you. May that spirit continue to strengthen and sustain you in the worship and mission of this church. And again, to all of you, we are so grateful that you are now a part of our church family. So welcome. Amen. This is a happy pause to see so many <laughs> making their space back. Children of God and family of faith, let us be in prayer together. Let us pray. Gracious and glorious God, with final reminders of winter's brisk mornings, we greet this day from our patch of your creation that has been sprinkled with showers. For nature's refreshment through the pouring rain, we give thanks. We remember what Jesus observed in his Sermon on the Mount, that you make the sun rise on the evil and the good, and you send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In such wisdom, O oh Lord, we recognize the unity in which you hold all of what you have made, and so we dare to pray for all that you have made and all whom you sustain. We pray for the poor, that through the inbreaking of your kingdom, they may find their inheritance. We pray for those who mourn, that as you gently mend their broken hearts, they may be comforted. We pray for the meek that, along with the poor, they may find their voices and thus inherit and protect the earth. We pray for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they may experience the fullness of your grace. We pray for those who show mercy, that the seeds of mercy they plant may yield fruits of mercy from which they too are fed. We pray for the pure in heart, that they may see you and measures of your handiwork in great beauty. We pray for the peacemakers, that you may call them by name as your children. We pray for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, that they too may find equity in your kingdom. 
and Holy One, we dare to pray for those who revile, who persecute, and who sow seeds of contempt, not that their actions would prevail, but that the sun which you allow to shine on them might melt away all that freezes their hearts and spirits in malice, just as that same sun beams warmth and nurture on the righteous. We pray that the rain that falls on those who wield destruction would wash away their power to wound, and that the same rain would cleanse the wounds and quench the thirsts of those who suffer. May we be salt and light bearers through your power working in and through us, that we might build a better world for ourselves and all those around us as you manifest your kingdom on earth. And so, together, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, we have the calling and the opportunity to tend to this tender earth which God has entrusted us with and the care of all creation. We do this through our time, we do this through our talent, and we ask that we do this together through our resources. So happily and joyfully and humbly may we offer our gifts to God. The ushers will receive your offering.
Together, let us pray. God, you have given each of us gifts to use as members of the body of Christ. Here are our gifts, the work of our hands, our hearts, and our lives. We pray that they may help to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to our world, today and always, here and everywhere. Amen. forgiveness. I'm not trying to avoid you, but I have to skedaddle to O'Hare as soon as the benediction is done to catch a two o'clock flight for an annual conference. So I'm not avoiding you. We will have many times to uh, say goodbye and thank you. Friends, go out into this world in peace and have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return no person evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May God bless you and keep you.